Okay, everybody, it's on. Mark 4, let's get there. 1 through 20. Uh, my first year in campus ministry uh, at Brown University, a freshman student became a Christian. Uh, and he had no church background whatsoever. Um, his parents never went to church. His parents never talked about God unless they were cussing. Um, his parents never opened the Bible. He never even saw a Bible. Uh, and it wasn't just his parents, but it was his grandparents that were the same. Now, when I was uh, in campus ministry, well, when I was a student, actually, I should say, about that time, uh, I had heard this, and I can't remember the source or I tell you, uh, but I, I know it's true because they documented it, of course, right? Everything's true if you put a footnote on it and have some documented source. Um, but about this time, this was the first time in the history of the United States that an area in the United States, the New England area, was the first time that there were three generations, grandparents, parents, and children, that were unchurched in the history of these United States. First time ever in the history of this country. Right? Now, I'm not going to go on to a take back this country for Jesus thing. That's not anywhere near what we're talking about. But that is something, isn't it? It's actually incredible. Well, this student, now in his junior year, so three years later after he became a Christian, this is what he said to a couple campus ministers and myself. He said, you know, uh, before I was a Christian, life, before I was a Christian, I was, life was easy and I was happy. <laughs> and then I became a Christian. And life is hard and confounding. Can you relate to that? Okay, uh, sometimes being a Christian is hard. Sometimes being a Christian uh, is not what you thought it was going to be. Maybe. Uh, God feels distant. Sin feels near. People that uh, you count on or are supposed to count on let you down, even hurt you. Areas of life like your job and your relationships um, your church, uh, your physical body, uh, societal justice and structures break down. Uh, it seems that a lot of the time people are just unresponsive to God. And maybe today you're adding your name to that list. Here's the question. What does God say to us when life is hard? What does God say to you when Christianity doesn't work? When your Christianity doesn't work? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Mark chapter 4, 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, 
since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then can you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the <clears throat> and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are those excuse me, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root of themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks Robin. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you for this passage and we ask that the reality of it, the power of it, the life of it would be actualized even now while we hear it. Uh, would our hearing go all the way down to the heart? Uh, we know that only you can do this uh, by the power of your spirit because of the good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in chapter 3, it appears that Jesus' ministry is a big failure. <laughs> you see that? I mean, look at this. In chapter 3, we have the crowds are not getting him. So they, they, uh, they get that he's a miracle worker, yes, but that he's the savior of the world, no. I mean, look at his family. They don't get him. Uh, they get that he's gone berserk, that he has some mental health issues, uh, but savior of the world, no. Then we come to the religious leaders. They don't get him. I mean, they think that he's tag-teamed or teamed up or partnered with the Lord of the Flies, literally, the Lord of Dung, right? But savior of the world, no. Uh, what would happen to a pastor and to a church if its ministry produced these kind of results today? Well, I can tell you what would happen. <laughs> I can tell you from firsthand knowledge. I've seen it happen. Um, I'm reading a new book right now on ministry, and it's laying out uh, the vision and practice of doing ministry today. Uh, and it's called Center Church. Okay, And in it, uh, this book says, once a minister embarks on a life of ministry, uh, it's only natural to ask, how am I doing and how will I know? Uh, we could also say that of a church. How are we doing? And how would we know? 
The most common answer today that's given is success, right? That's the mark that a church is, you know how you're doing, is if you're successful, if you have lots of people coming, lots of people attending, lots of people joining the church, if your budget continues to grow, if you're building bigger and better facilities, if more people are engaged in the life and the ministries and the programs of the church, uh, success, then you're effective. Then you'll know. I think the answer that's now been in response to that, according to this book, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is the answer of faithfulness. Then you'll know. Ooh. Now this is more in our our realm of things, you know, outside of our tradition, we, we, you know, those people that are think success is it, but we're the people of faithfulness. We think faithfulness is the answer. That's how, you know, if we're faithful, uh, in preaching and teaching the scriptures, if we're faithful, uh, in having sound doctrine, making sure our theology is right. If we're faithful, with a godly character, um, then your ministry would be effective. Now, I know all of us are tending to say, isn't that the answer, though? Now, before, um, well, let's do it this way. I'm going to let someone else do it because it it sounds better and it's nicer if someone else says it than I say it. Um, Let Spurgeon nicely, gently tell us, us particularly, our tradition particularly, that faithfulness is not the answer. Wow. Okay, here's what he says. Certain good men appeal to me who are distinguished by enormous passion and zeal. Uh, He's not criticizing here. I mean, he's actually, he he likes them, right? Brethren who would talk forever and ever upon nothing, who would stamp and thump the Bible and get nothing out of it at all. Earnest, awfully earnest, mountains and labor of the most painful kind, but nothing comes of it all. Therefore, I have usually declined their applications. What he's talking about is he has a pastor's college, which is set up just for that, to train pastors and to train ministers to do ministry, to know what effective ministry is and to engage in effective ministry. And he's saying having faithful people um, is not the mark of real ministry. It's good. It's okay, but it's not the mark. People that are wholly committed and determined to doing and working hard in ministry is not the mark of faithful ministry. It's not the mark of ministry. Uh, why? Because it can nothing. Because it could come to nothing. That work. Here's the big idea. What is real ministry if it's not success and faithfulness? What is it? That's the answer of this text. We need to make it a little more personal because that's a little more out there. That's a little more big picture stuff. That's stuff that we as a church can be encouraged about and we as a church can see and adjust and make it. But me, how am I in this passage? Here's what I want you to think about. Here's the the hook for you. Uh, What do you do when your Christianity doesn't work? That's the personal hook. So in the big picture is what is real ministry? If it's not success and it's not faithfulness, what is it? And now on the personal level, what do you do when Christianity doesn't work? Okay, here we go. Now, Jesus's response uh, to people not getting him. They're not getting who he is, his identity. They're not getting what he's about, his mission. They're not getting it. His response, here it is. Here's how he's going to respond to it. You know what he does? Teaches. 
And you're thinking, it is faithfulness. Well, hold on. Uh, this is the first time uh, that Mark that Mark records the content of Jesus' teaching. Now, in the book, he's been told he's taught. Like, we know that he's taught in such a way in the synagogue that everyone said, I've never heard teaching like this. They were astounded. They were amazed, the text said. Nowhere. He teaches with authority as if he's the author of all things. As if he's inherently power. Inherently the story of the universe, right? Uh, But here... Uh, is the first time that his actual content is recorded. Now, when I started this passage and started studying, it was a real hard, it was a hard passage when I'm reading it and I'm seeing how difficult parables are. I felt like I was embodying in the preparation, the reality of the passage. So I can't wait to get to God loves me or something like that, which will embody a nicer, fuller week. Well, I start studying this passage, and here's the first words I wrote down on my notes. You ready? I said, Jesus must have had a big voice to be heard on a boat on the ocean by so many people. Um, So I'm sorry that, you know, some of you think I have more spiritual observations and questions when I'm studying the text, but that's the first thing I thought of. Man, he must have a big voice. Well, I've heard one of those big voices before. When I was in seminary in chapel and he was 85 years old and his name was W.A. Criswell. And when he preached, um, the stained glass vibrated. And everyone was just blinking involuntarily every five seconds. And when you left, your ears were ringing. It's like you were in a Van Halen concert. It was unbelievable. I heard it. Now, later on in the day, after I asked that question, that very noteworthy question, passage of he must have had a big voice i came across this in my studies i read about a place on the sea of galilee galilee that's halfway between capernaum remember capernaum is on the northwest corner of the sea and there's a place called tabtha down here and halfway between it there's a place that is described this way where the land gently slopes down to a lovely bay and it's a natural amphitheater it's actually called the bay of parables and Israeli scientists said they have verified that this place can transmit the human voice effortlessly to thousands and thousands of people. Now, what I just said has nothing to do with this passage, but that is absolutely incredible, is it not? I mean, that's amazing stuff. Nothing to do. So let's get back. The first time Mark records Jesus' teaching, guess what kind of teaching it is? It's a parable. Jesus has 60 parables that are recorded in the New Testament in the Gospels. Matthew and Luke has most of them. Mark has a few of them. John has none. That's interesting. A parable means to throw alongside. Okay? Uh, Real, literal, normal, ordinary life is thrown alongside something else. Okay? Okay? It becomes a symbol of something else. A parable is not this huge word picture or this giant metaphor or aphorism. It's not a, a, a sticky point or phrase like you find in poetry or you find in proverbial wisdom literature, right? Or even in the apocalyptic where it's just pictures everywhere in the imagination. A parable is real, ordinary, literal life like fishing and farming and housekeeping. 
that kind of stuff thrown alongside something else to give it meaning. So uh, Mark scholar James Edwards says parables function like stained glass windows in a cathedral. So if you're in a cathedral, a really nice one, if you've been to a really, really nice one, um, you walk, well, let's say on the outside, you look at the stained glass from the outside and what do you see? What does it look like? It's dull and lifeless from the outside. But then when you go inside into the sanctuary, now, kind of like this, but... You know, I told the first service, I might as well get it on tape for the second service. Five years, we have a place like that. Can you imagine? You walk in on the inside, though, and you look up at the stained glass windows, and it's brilliant. It's radiant. This is very, very important to know about parables, or you're going to be very, very confused about verses 10 through 12. And possibly very, very upset. Okay? Look at verses 10 through 12. Because I'm not going to read them right now. You got it? Okay, you're a little uneasy? Here we go. We can see parables from the outside. And we can see parables from the inside. We can see a parable from the outside and it looks lifeless and dull to us. And we can see a parable on the inside and it looks brilliant and looks radiant to us. If we are seeing parables from the outside, here's what's happening. Parables are revealing our hearts to us. If we see a parable and it looks dull and lifeless to us, that's because the parable is actually revealing who we are. It's revealing what's going on on the inside. It's revealing that that's what we see. That's what our hearts are like. And I use this illustration all the time. So forgive me, but I'm going to do it now. I have water in this cup. Water spills on the floor. Why is there water on the floor? Because there's water in the cup. All my hitting did was reveal what's already there. A parable reveals what's already there. It reveals our blindness, and it reveals our unbelief, and it reveals our hard-heartedness. So if we see a parable from the outside, it's functioning as a revealer. But if we see a parable from the inside, where it actually starts penetrating down into the depths of the soul, and that you begin to see brilliance and radiance, the parable is functioning as a reacher. So there's a dual function to parables. They can reveal us, And they can reach us and see who's being revealed and who's being reached in this passage. Okay? All right, real ministry is not success or faithfulness because real ministry is a seed. Real ministry is not success and it's not faithfulness. Real ministry is a seed. Jesus is making it clear in the first record of the content of his teaching that his word, that his gospel, that his good news, the summary of his whole ministry, that the verbal form of his communication, which is what he does to 
save sinners, not what sinners do to save themselves. What he accomplishes, what he wins, what he secures, what he finishes, what he completes, this verbal communication, declaration, proclamation is a seed. If you bury a Dr. Pepper bottle in the ground, uh, the Dublin kind, right? The good kind. And you bury it into the ground and um, it's, you know, you, you make a little hole, put it in there and then, you, and then you water it. You can water it all you want. And then, you know, you can come alongside and, and sprinkle fertilizer on it all you want. And you can go and put mulch around it, weed it all you want. You can be the best bottle whisperer there is all you want. That bottle will not grow. That bottle has no life in it. That bottle has no power in it. But the seed does. We can be successful and have lots of people come through these doors and we can pack it out and we can have bigger facilities and bigger programs and bigger budgets and more people involved in activities and programs and the life and the ministries of this church. We can be successful and we can be faithful. We can get our doctrine right. We can be sound in our theology and sound in good godly character. We can have our Bible knowledge down. We can study the Bible, study doctrine, teach the Bible, teach doctrine, do outreach and evangelism. We can be faithful. But if we don't have the seed, or let me put it this way, if the seed is not central to everything the church is about and everything it does, that if the seed is not driving it, if the seed is not defining it, if the seed is not shaping it and structuring it and empowering it, if the seed isn't organically it, we're planting bottles. We're watering bottles. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples when I don't get the point of the seed, verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand then all my parables? This parable is the paradigmatic parable of all the parables. In other words, to get this parable is to get the rest. If you don't get what he's saying here, he's saying, then you're not going to get anything I say. What does he want you to get? Verse 14. The sower sows the word. And the word, as Mark makes clear, is the gospel. It's not just any word. It's not law words. Bible knowledge words. Doctrine words. Theology words. It's Gospel words. Good news words. Declarations and reports of something secured and finished and completed and done. 
to save and rescue sinners. Those kinds of words are a seed. They have divine power in it. They have divine life in it. This seed alone explodes with a hundredfold crop. If you were to go into the ancient Near East, and uh, well, let's put it this way. When they heard this, the original hearer hears a, hunt, six, a 30, 60, hundredfold crop, they would be going, nowhere ever has that ever happened in any history of agriculture and any civilization in the history of the world to have that kind of yield. It's extraordinary. It's supernatural. It's not of this world. It's of God. Only the seed can bear that kind of crop. Right? So why does the seed, why does this verbal communication of what Jesus has done for us, that's so simple yet so infinite and it's so beautiful that there's so many cuts on the diamond and each cut on the diamond, each message of that diamond will actually fill you with brilliance and radiance. Why does the seed have divine life and power in it? Why is that the case? What do you think? I believe Mark tells us right from the beginning why by giving you a very awkward Greek sentence. Now, in your original translate, in your translated editions, they've smoothed out the awkwardness so you don't see it. So I'm going to give you the original reading in the original Greek. It goes like this. You ready? Jesus got in a boat and sat on the sea. That's what the original language says. It's taken from Psalm 29:10, where the psalmist wrote, "The Lord is enthroned over the flood." In Israel and in the ancient Near East, the sea and the flood were uncontrollable places filled with bad things. Dark fears, dark powers ugly stuff. The flood in the ancient Near East, um, it's fascinating that every civilization in the ancient Near East had a flood story. Now, if you were a critical scholar, you'd say, aha, well, that means that there's a flood story there and there's a flood story in the Bible. The Bible is just copying their flood story. Okay, you could say that. Or you could say that there must have been such an apocalyptic cosmic flood that the effects of it and the echoes of it and the reality of it was so massive and so big, it was like a tremor and a ripple that went through every culture and every civilization. And they all wrote about it because it was real, because it really happened. Well, that's another way you could look at it. The flood was always in the ancient Near East and always in Israel's history, it was the sign of decreation of decreation coming back and claiming and disintegrating and unraveling creation, of decreation coming back and disintegrating and unraveling human relationships, human souls, physical creation and life. And Jesus is teaching by sitting on the sea. the king of the chaos. The Lord of corruption. The Lord of the storm. 
the Lord of the power of sin. Why is he that? Because Jesus' death is the ultimate chaos. Jesus' death is the ultimate storm. Jesus' death is the ultimate curse of sin. Jesus takes our place and takes the ultimate chaos and the ultimate flood and the ultimate storm and the ultimate curse we deserve. He's the seed that brings life. He's the seed that dies and unleashes a hundredfold crop. The word is a seed that has life and power in it because Jesus' death has life and power in it. Jesus is the seed and his death, his death controls the chaos. His death subdues the storm. His death is enthroned over the curse of sin. Jesus sits on the sea. Real ministry is not success. Real ministry is not faithfulness. Real ministry is the seed. The seed of the gospel. The seed of the life and the death and the resurrection in another that unleashes power and unleashes life on those who don't deserve it. Let's make it a little more personal and we'll end there. You ready? Uh, What do you do when Christianity isn't working? Well, the first thing we can learn from this story right away is do not turn to success if your Christianity isn't working. I mean, that's the worst thing you could do. And do not turn to faithfulness if your Christianity isn't working. That's the second worst thing you could do. The answer is do not plant bottles. Plant the seed more deeply into your soul. That's the answer. There are three of the four soils here have problems, don't they? Three of the four soils here don't make it. There's many reasons for them. The first one, there's satanic influences. You got to think of the heart like a burning fire and satanic influence is just gasoline. It's just fueling what's already there. So there's satanic influences. What's your fire? What gets you? Well, satanic influences is just throwing gasoline on your fire. Everyone has their own little private stove and their own little private pilot light, and he kind of knows your stuff and throws gas on it, fuel on it. Uh, The other is you notice that it's just simple, ordinary stuff in life, tough times. Did you see that? I mean, people that don't make it, this text is just saying tough times show that. Hard times, pain and suffering. Oh, man. I mean, it's almost like if, if we didn't make it because there was something a little more, you know, monstrous and diabolical and something we can see, we'd be like, okay, that's a good reason. But pain, suffering, tough times. And then look at the next soil. What gets, gets us there? Worry. Oh, no. <laughs> Worry gets us. Worrying about finances, worrying about your marriage, worrying about your friendships, worrying about your job, worrying about your kids gets you. Worrying about whether you're liked, worrying about so-and-so's criticism. 
And you see the completion of that, the deceitfulness of riches? Riches deceive because riches promise to give you security, but they can't deliver. Riches deceive because they promise to give you control in your life, but they can't deliver. Riches deceive because they promise to give you happiness and fulfillment, but they can't deliver, so they deceive us. And then the last part of that one particular soil, did you see what it is, the third one? Desires. Normal garden variety desires that go mega, they go epic, they go big, dominating. I mean, you could take any good desire from food to sexual intimacy to want to be liked and accepted to, you know, wanting to really do well in your career. And that's a good thing. These are all good, horizontal, earthly, normal, natural desires. But this text is saying when those desires break their boundaries, when those desires overflow, they're assigned a lot, they're course, their river course, they become epic, they become mega, they become godlike. That's why we don't make it. One soil makes it. And the difference is one, all, the, all of them hear, but one hears all the way to the heart. Do you notice that? They all hear the word and the good soil is the only one that hears all the way to the heart. The fourth hears all the way to the heart because the fourth actually receives into the core of their very being good news. Jesus' death, sitting on the sea of all flood and all chaos and all guilt and all curse and all shame and all corruption and all sin and all bad things, that death gets down into the soul and gives life, produces a crop a hundredfold. Jesus' death and his resurrection is, is accepted and trusted and treasured in such a way that uh, it becomes a substitutionary death, a death in our place and a death for me and a death that has now become my death and a now that's become my curse and I'm free. It's a, it's a seed that works its way all the way down to the soul in such a way that you rely on the death that gives life and power to you who doesn't have it. Do you notice how Jesus begins the parable and ends the parable? What does he say? Verse 3. Listen. What does he say? He who has ears, let him hear. So the, the command here, the, the imperative is listen, hear, understand. Take this seed, work it in to your soul. The call here, this parable, is not to go do something. The call here is to believe something. Believe it in a bigger way. Believe it in a brighter way. Believe it in a better way. That's the point of the passage. Work it in till it hits home. Think it down till it becomes light. The Puritans would say, may it become light and heat in your soul. Uh, ask the Holy Spirit to make the person and work of Christ, the gospel realities, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to make it clear to your mind, real to your heart. That's what this passage is talking about. 
Notice uh, verse 10. The disciples are the only ones that ask for more understanding of the parable. Did you get that? No one else does. So they were revealed to be outside. Ah, this is dull and lifeless. The, the disciples were like, it's, it's a little bright in here. I don't get it. I need more. When real Christianity doesn't work, it's time to check what you're planting. Are you planting bottles? Or are you planting the seed? So real Christianity is not success. Real Christianity is not faithfulness. Real Christianity is the seed, the power of the gospel. Amen.